Good morning. After I picked a topic and knew what I was speaking on, uh, it was just coming up with an intro that didn't sound too cheesy, corny, or didn't try to be too funny. So what I was thinking of is after I'd picked my topic, what came to my mind was each of us as a human, we have certain attributes or uh, labels that, we, that we're given, whether it be a son or a daughter or husband, father, wife, mother, uh, whatever it may be. So today I would like to look at the attributes and the, the labels that Jesus is given uh, in the four Gospels. So go ahead and turn to Matthew 1, verse 1. Matthew uh, mentions Jesus as a king. We're going to look at what type of king Matthew mentions him as, though. Matthew 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. If we jump down to the end of verse 5, we see uh, of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse was the father of David the king. So even before knowing that Jesus is a king, we see that he is automatically in a line of kings and uh, is therefore qualified to be Israel's king. So if we jump ahead to verse 16 of Matthew 1, we read, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So now we see that Jesus is in a major line of kings. It doesn't mean that he is king automatically. Many names are mentioned in the genealogy, but not all the men listed were kings. Although there is another sign that is given that Jesus is king in Matthew 2, verse 2, which reads, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We see here that even the wise men who had never seen Jesus before already knew he was going to be king. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, says, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In the first part of the verse, John says, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if heaven is described as a kingdom, it must have a king. And if it is the Lord we are preparing it for, the Lord Jesus must be the king of heaven. Now we're going to look at Mark and what Mark labels Jesus as. His next aspect is his servanthood. John Mark, who is the author of Mark, gives much insight on Jesus' servanthood. The book of Mark can be broken down into five main points each showing something else related to Jesus being a servant. They are the presentation of the servant, which is chapters 1 and 2, the opposition of the servant, chapters 2 through 8, the instruction by the servant, chapters 8 through 10, and the rejection of the servant, chapters 11 through 15, and finally the resurrection of the servant, which is chapter 16. So what was it about Mark that made him see the servant attitude in Jesus? Several verses in Mark list the immediate reaction of something. 
The word yithis means immediately, and the word appears more times in Mark than in the rest of the New Testament. So, what was it about Mark that caused him to recognize this about Jesus? No need to turn there, but in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul writes while sitting in prison about Mark, saying, Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you. Why? Because he, referring to Mark, is useful to me for service. So Mark, probably being a good servant himself, notices the servant-like actions of Jesus more than the other Gospels. Go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10. And verse 35, this passage best shows uh, Jesus' perspective on what servanthood really is. Starting in verse 35, and James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him saying to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism from which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. But Jesus replied, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and, the, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those whom it, whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the 10 began to feel indignant with James and John and calling to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying how in order to be first or great or honored, you must consider yourself last and be ready to serve immediately for others. Now we've looked at Matthew and Mark. I would like to look at uh, Luke and John and what they label him as. (sighs) Savior. Luke has two different titles that he references Jesus as, one being the Son of Man, but the other being Savior. In Luke 2.11, Luke 2.11, we see uh, Luke write, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The title of Savior was given to him from birth. He did not have to earn the title. Uh, it was, it was already, he was already called it from the moment he was born. As if a baby was born tomorrow, I don't think any of us would say, For today in the town of Rancho, a corporate manager is born. So how does the angel announcing this news in Luke 2 know that he is a Savior? The angel knew the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 and 53 that spoke of the coming Savior. The Lord knew that the shepherds would probably not easily accept that this baby was the Savior, but he used an angel of the Lord to help the shepherds believe that this birth was fulfilling what Isaiah had prophesied about 800 years earlier, that a Savior was coming. Let's look at this example of Christ being a Savior in Luke chapter 23.
and verse 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So the example that Jesus sets here is perfectly relating to his service and saving power. Notice how he saved the thief, a criminal who deserved eternal death, but did not save himself. This shows that he was not here for his enjoyment, but the mission to save others. Also in Luke 19.10, we see the other title that Jesus is given. For the Son of Man has, not, has, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This verse is a combination of both the aspects in Luke. He's called the Son of Man, but his mission was to seek and to save those who were lost. The final aspect of Christ, as mentioned in John, uh, is being the Son of God. The book of John can be broken down into several sections or different parts, each of which emphasize the development of Jesus, of Jesus being the Son of God. Chapter one speaks about the incarnation of the Son of God, Chapters 1 through 4, he talks about the presentation of the Son of God. In chapters 5 through 12, we see the world's opposition to the Son of God. In chapters 13 through 17, John emphasizes the relationship between the disciples and the Son of God. And finally, the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Son of God is shown to us in chapters 18 through 21. John's gospel focuses on the theological meaning of Jesus' actions rather than the actions themselves. John emphasizes the true identity of Jesus rather than what he did. Go ahead and turn to John 20. And verse 31. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So some would like to say that being a son would therefore not allow him to have the same honor, glory, or attributes as their father. But in John 10 verse 30, we read that I and the Father are one. So this verse alone is great in that it shows that Christ is not separate from God, but, uh, even though he is described as God's son. So why does God call Jesus his son? He knows how important the relationship between a father and a son it is. And it is also something that we as humans can relate to. In John 3.16, some of you may have heard this one before, but for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This verse is an example of the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus had one mission while on earth, which was to save others. However, the attributes of Christ given by four of his disciples are all displayed while he is on while he is doing what he ultimately came to do. Let's go back to Luke 23 again. In verse 39. Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear of God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. I cannot find a better passage that summarizes Jesus than that one right there. Jesus is hanging on a cross, dying for sinners, saving everybody except himself. Even the thief hanging next to him recognizes that he is blameless and doesn't hesitate to ask to be with him forever. We all once were just as lost as a thief, and without Christ, we still are. But the difference is whether or not you choose to accept what Christ did for you on that day 2,000 years ago. I know I have. I hope the same is true for you. Thank you. Now we hear from David. Well, good morning. I was talking to Grandma Fran at the break, and she said that she heard a, a good preacher was speaking this morning. Um, unfortunately for you, he just sat down. So um, <laughs> you guys have to suffer for the rest of the, the morning. Um, we are going to close and finish up the book of Jonah. It's been a long process. If you want to turn there to chapter 4, uh, this will be our final, final look at the book of Jonah. Uh, we've taken four, uh, four sessions or four meetings to, to consider this, this prophet. And I think a lot of this um, will dovetail nicely into uh, what our brother Lincoln just shared and, and the importance of, of the gospel and who God is. Um, his attributes, his character, um, and, and his love for people, um, whether they be lost or saved. So we're going to actually uh, read um, one verse in, in chapter 3, starting in verse 10, and we'll finish up the book here. <clears throat> chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Then God saw their works, and they turned, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade, till he might see what would become of that city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it be, uh, come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery, so Jonah was very grateful for the plant, but as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it, was, and it so damaged the, the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And then he, then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. And the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow. 
which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which, more, uh, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and much livestock? Uh, to briefly recap, um, some would title the book of Jonah uh, a prophet with an attitude. Um, this, uh, this prophet we read in, in, in chapter 1 was given a mission by God to preach a, a message to the Gentiles. Um, Jonah was a prophet to the children of Israel from the area of Gath-Hefer. We read about this in 2 Kings 14. Um, and Jonah was, uh, lived his life on a roller coaster emotionally. Um, he was up, he was down, he was happy, he was sad, he was grateful, he was mad. And we see that this controls Jonah's um, actions and responses. And in, in chapter 1, God gives him this message to preach, and he refuses to preach it. Um, I think we read our Bibles too, too quickly sometimes. Um, what Just thinking of, of God and who he is and how much that would have hurt him to have his prophet whom he loved, um, whom he trusted, to go preach this message of salvation to an to a evil, wicked people, and Jonah refused. Um, and now we see for the rest of the book what God does to correct the actions of Jonah, to bring him back into fellowship um, with him. So, so we have in, 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 at the end of verse, uh, chapter 3, we have um, the people of Nineveh responding to the message that Jonah preached. That message was, at the beginning of chapter 3, that, that destruction was going to come in 40 days. Um, and, and that's all he preached. Um, he didn't, we don't read anywhere in Scripture where he gave them an ultimatum as, if you repent, then maybe it will be relieved. He just said, in 40 days, you will be destroyed. Um, well, what, what happened? What took place? It says the people believed God. Um, they believed and they trusted in, in the God of Jonah. Um, this was a wicked, evil people, the Assyrians. Um, they were a superpower of that day. Um, they would have been torturing Israel for decades and centuries. And um, Jonah would have had, and we see it in, 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 in this uh, chapter we're going to be looking at today, just an underlining hatred for this people. Um, he did not want these people to be saved. Um, he wanted them to be destroyed. Um, that's, why he, that's why we read he left, he fled, he went to Tarshish. He thought that he could outrun God. But we see that God um, and, and what he used to bring Jonah back, God went out ahead of him. He prepared a storm. He prepared a, a whale. And now we, we're going to see some other things that God prepares to correct Jonah's actions. But we see the heart of God in this, in this portion, in this book, for the lost. God wasn't willing that these people should perish. Um, God didn't want to see them perish, even though the, these, these same people had been uh, attacking and killing and disgracing God's chosen people, the, Israel, the children of Israel. Um, God still loved them and wanted to see them saved. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So in verse 10, it says, Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil, evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God saw their works. Now, it wasn't the works that saved the Ninevites. It wasn't the fact that they repent or that they, they put on sackcloth and ashes, that they fasted, that they put sackcloth and ashes on their animals, as we read in chapter 3. Those works that, they, that, that 
Nineveh displayed were an outward display of what took place in their heart. Um, we read that they believed God in verse 5. They believed God. Um, and and this, this, is, um, this is the gospel. Um, uh, Ephesians says, For by grace we are saved through faith, not of works. Um, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to merit favor with God. It is not by works of righteousness what we have done, but according to his mercy, his loving grace, he saved us. And this is through our son, as we've been, uh, through his son, our savior, which we looked at this morning and we're going to look at in a few minutes. But God saw their works, that outward display of an inward change that had taken place. They had repented of their sin and turned to God from it, and God relented. Now, a lot of people have problems with this verse. They said God changed. They said God changed, and God can't change. We read in, in Hebrews 13, uh, verse 8, that the Lord Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But it says here that God relented. Some of your uh, translations will say he repented. Um, the, 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 the issue here is that God didn't change, but Nineveh changed. Um, they turned to God from their sin. And now God is able to display grace and mercy and loving kindness on this people because they believed God. They turned from their sin, and God didn't punish them. He didn't pour out his wrath on them. This made Jonah extremely upset. Um, the, the, the words used here, it says, but it displeased Jonah greatly in verse 1 of chapter 4, and he became angry. This is, this is, a, this is a spitting mad. This is just shake your fist at God kind of anger, and he was displeased greatly with God. And see, we, we, we see here that, again, Jonah is allowing his emotions to control his actions and his responses. Um, he had this underlining hatred for this people, for this wicked people. Um, now, God even said in, in chapter 1 that, it, that their wickedness has come up before me. Um, it reminds us of in the book of, uh, or in uh, Genesis, um, when God is speaking with Noah, and he says that their, their wickedness has come up before me. The people were evil. They were doing wicked things. And God hates evil. He hates sin. And we see that, um, what he does to take care of sin on Calvary. But God hates sin, and at the, at the same time, absolutely loves the sinner. Um, and here we see Jonah is, is just angry at God for, for saving and for turning and for not doing uh, what, um, not performing this prophecy that Jonah had preached to the city. So he prays to the Lord in verse 2, and he says, Ah, oh, Lord, was not this? Now look at this. We're going to have nine things that pop up to you. Let's see if we can see them. Ah, oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious, merciful God, God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to live, to die than to live. Selfish. Selfish. Um, Jonah cared more about his uh, hatred for this people than he did for God. And, and what God was going to do. He was so concerned with the destruction of Nineveh, he wanted, them to see, he wanted to see them destroyed. 
How do we know this? Well, he leaves and goes and sets up a nice little tent on the outside of town just to watch the fireworks show. Um, he wanted them to be destroyed. Um, he hated this people. Um, some suggest that Jonah was also upset at God because now Jonah, by definition, has made a false prophecy. Um, Jonah prophesied that in 40 days Nineveh was going to be destroyed. Um, according to Deuteronomy 18.22, for the sake of time we won't go there, but it says that if a prophet makes a, performs a prophecy or says something and it doesn't come to pass, he is by definition a false prophet. Um, some suggest that this is why Jonah is so angry, and, and I, don't, I don't think so. I think the reason why he's upset is because he didn't want to go in the first place. He didn't want those people because he knew God's character. He knew God would be gracious and merciful, and he was slow to anger, and he hated that about him. This suggests to us that Jonah was a very studied prophet. Um, in chapter 2, we have this beautiful tapestry of all these psalms woven together at, at, in Jonah's prayer and the belly of the fish. Well, in, in Exodus 34, um, in verse 6, we have um, God telling Moses, or, uh, Moses, um, things about his character, and in uh, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, read it real quickly. It says, um, and the Lord passed before him, being Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So, so we see here that Jonah is recalling this, this thing that was written in the Torah or the Pentateuch or um, things that were written a long time ago by, by Moses uh, concerning the character of God. The same characteristics of God are listed for us in Nehemiah 9 and uh, verse 17. This gracious and merciful God um, who, is, who is slow to anger. Um, Jonah's prayer uh, of selfishness, um, he, he prays. He prays to God, um, and, and, he's, and he's angry. Um, and he says, I know you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents from doing harm. God does not want to judge us. He doesn't want to judge you. He doesn't want to judge me. How do we know this? Because he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. And when he was on that cross, he poured out all the judgment that you and I deserved on his son in your place and in my place. He didn't want us to die. He doesn't want it. Hell is created. Hell and eternal destruction was created for Satan and his followers. Not for, not for people, but it, it, is, it is a choice that is given to us. Um, it, it is a choice to, to accept and by faith put our trust in what Jesus Christ has done on that cross for us or to reject it and to spend eternity separated from him. Uh, Jonah cries out in verse 3, he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now Jonah is angry, he's mad. But think about what Jonah just accomplished through the power of the Lord. He went through a city and proclaimed a message. 
and an entire city turned to God. What, I mean, talk about a, a, an amazing gospel message. Um, we, we, we read that, you know, uh, Peter preached the message uh, on the first day of the birth of the church uh, at Pentecost. 3,000 souls were saved. Um, and, and we see other, other times when, when a lot of people come to know the Lord at once. But here, an entire city, an entire wicked city comes and turns to God. And you would think that you would be on a spiritual high after that. You would just, uh, you'd be jazzed. You know, it's kind of like coming back from a, a good week up at, at a conference or, or going door to door or things, and you're just excited. But what do we see about Jonah? He's, he's angry, and in fact, he wants to die. Um, we see this in, in other, throughout scripture, we see this in, in the life of Moses. Uh, Moses is fed up with the people, the children of Israel. He's tired, and he says, Lord, just take me home. I don't want to be here anymore. This is too hard. And this is on the back of that great exodus, that, that, those great miracles, crossing of, of the Red Sea, and all these great things that God did through him. And he's like, I'm done. I'm out. I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, the same with Elijah. Elijah on Mount Carmel, we see him perform this great act through the power of God, calling down fire from heaven and destroying and, and making a mockery of this, this false god of Baal. And Jezebel, this queen, um, writes him a note and says, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get you tomorrow. I'm going to come after you tomorrow. Well, it's kind of like that, that bully on the playground. You know, meet me at the flagpole tomorrow. Well, if you're so tough, meet me here right now. You know, just take me right now. But she doesn't. She says, I'm going to get you tomorrow. And, and the same Elijah, this mighty prophet of God who called down fire from heaven, is scared to death of, this, of this, this wicked queen. And he runs, and he hides in the wilderness. And what is his prayer? Oh, Lord, take my life. I'm all, I'm all by myself. I'm all alone. I can't do it. Well, in the life of Moses, we see that God sends help. He sends 70 elders to help him. And in the life of Elijah, we see that God sends an angel to provide a meal for him and to comfort him and to encourage him. Now, what do we see in the life of Jonah? Same, same response, Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. And then he says, is it right for you to be angry? This is God's question to Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry about this? Jonah uh, turns a cold shoulder to God and doesn't respond to this question, which I think is very interesting. He doesn't even answer him. And what does he do? Well, his actions speak louder than words. In verse 5, he says, Now Jonah went out to the city and sat on the east side of the city. So if you, if you picture this, um, the sun rises in the east. So the sun would have been at his back, and he's sitting on the east side of the city. So he, on that 40th day, he would have been watching. And just the, as the sun catches that city, just watching, waiting for something to happen. So he sits on the east side of the city, and there he made himself a shelter or a booth and sat under it in the shade until he might... Uh, see what would come of the city. So I, I kind of picture this, uh, for those that have kids or had kids a long time ago, um, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. You know, just this w poor, measly little stick figure kind of shack. Um, and, and he's just grumpy, just like Eeyore, just depressed and angry with God. He, he's, he's hoping that the city will be destroyed. And he's sitting under this makeshift booth outside the city. And, and it seems as if he's going to be there for a while. He's going to wait this one out. I mean, he makes, he makes a little camp, makes a little tent, and he's going to see. He wants to make sure that, that this, city, this city doesn't get destroyed. And he says, and the Lord prepared a plant. The Lord prepared a plant. We see a lot of things that God does in the life of Jonah, um, a lot of things that he prepared for him. 
And here we have this plant, or some of yours reads a gourd, and made it to come up over Jonah. Now, he could have prepared a gourd over there, and he could have prepared a plant over there, but he made the plant come up right where Jonah had pitched his tent. And it came up over Jonah and delivered him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. See, the sun had been beating down on, 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 uh, on Jonah and um, just, just kind of stirring the pot, making it worse. Um, the, the, the city of Nineveh is in the modern-day uh, Mosul uh, over there in Iraq, and it's, it's just very hot, very hot place. And um, this, this structure of sticks with this nice vine growing through the sticks would have just been perfect just to shade him from this, this, um, this heat that had been, been out there. And this is, a, this is a blessing designed by God. And, and God does design blessings for us. Um, speaking to, to believers, he does provide blessings for us, and he uses blessings not just to bless us, but also to correct our path, to bring us back to him. Now, Jonah's response could be, you know what, Lord, thank you. You know, I just, this was great, and, you know, I, I was really in a nasty mood yesterday, and I'm sorry, and thank you for this plant, and, you know, I'm going to pack up and go home now. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't. It's, it's this shade that protects him from this misery. He's thankful for the plant, but it says um, in verse 7, but as the morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. Um, some suggest that instead of um, referring to the story of Jonah, Jonah and the big fish or Jonah and the whale, they should refer to it as Jonah and the worm um, because of, of this, this last book of, or this last chapter of Jonah. Um, chapter 3 would have been a great ending to the book. Chapter 3 would have been great. Um, we have Jonah coming out of the city. The city repents. God relents of, of the destruction that he does. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful story. Why chapter 4? Why do we have chapter 4? Well, because the story in this book of Jonah isn't to tell us about Jonah. It's not about Jonah. It's not about a fish. It's not about even the city of Nineveh. And it's not about a worm. It's about God, and it's what God, it, it, it shows to us the character and the heart of God, that God not only has a heart for the lost, but he also has a heart for that wayward prophet, that wayward sinner, that sinner who is wandering from his will. And God prepares this plan, a plan of blessing to come over him, and then God prepares a worm, and, and, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. So this plant that had come up in a night, beautiful shade, beautiful shade, and one day God prepared a worm, and that worm ate the plant, and, and, it, and destroyed it, and wrecked it, and it withered. That wasn't enough. That wasn't enough. It says, and it happened when the sun arose that God prepared, again preparing, a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. So here in this, in this worm, we have trials that come into our life. It's a picture of trials. We have this picture of blessing in the plant, comfort, encouragement, refreshment in the plant. And then we have this worm that comes and destroys that blessing um, and, and takes it away from us. Um, now we see Jonah's response. Jonah thought he deserved that plant. That was my plant, and you, you wrecked it. But we see this trial that comes in, and what is this trial supposed to do? What is it doing? It's teaching Jonah a lesson. 
And God uses trials in our lives to teach us a lesson, to bring us back to him. And God sends this vehement east wind, just this hot, miserable wind. Some suggest that it probably knocked over his, his little structure, his little Eeyore tent. And now it's just hot and miserable. And it says he grew faint. Um, for those of us that have suffered through heat stroke, it's not fun. Um, heat stroke is miserable. Um, your stomach hurts. Uh, you just want to just crawl up in a ball and die. Um, it's, it's very miserable. And this vehement east wind represents just adverse circumstances that take place in our life. Um, adverse circumstances, things that, that happen and we don't know why. Why, why did God do this? Why, why, did, why did this happen to me? And it beat on Joseph's head, and it says, Jonah responded to this. This is how he responds to this situation. It's better for me to die than to live. Similar to what he just said coming out of the city. It's better for me to die than to live. I, I just can't take it anymore. I can't see your blessing on this people. And now he's, he's complaining, and he's miserable, and he wants to die because of a, his, the circumstances that he's in. Well, what would have been the proper way to respond to this situation? Um, we read in Job, after Job loses everything, um, that we would say, all the blessings that God had given him, uh, livestock, fortune, family, health. What is, what is Jonah's response? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is how we too should respond to these trials in our life. What is God trying to do? What is... What, why is this happening to me? Is this, is this to correct my actions? It could be. Or it could be God showing, putting you through something so that you can help somebody else in the future. Um, uh, this, we know, without a shadow of a doubt, was to correct Jonah's actions. Uh, we know that Jonah was not in the right state. And Jonah clearly says, um, and, and, and in his prayer and his shaking his fist to God, you, uh, you know, I... I I didn't want these people to be saved, and I knew that you were gracious. So we knew Jonah was in the wrong place, uh, spiritually speaking. Then it says, then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? I asked you before, is it right for you to be angry about the city? Now what about this plant? Now Jonah, has, he, he can't hold his tongue anymore. He says, yes, it's right for me to be angry about this plant. I am mad. Um, and, and he says, it's even right for me to die. I says, even to death. I'm, I'm so angry at you, God, right now for this. Jonah had a, a greater love for a temporary plant than he did for an entire city full of lost souls on their way to hell. Um, and this, this, this reminds me of, of, this brings it down to earth for me. Um, how, how, how much do we value temporal things? Uh, somebody dents our car. Um, somebody gets our order wrong at the restaurant. Um, somebody does something that either causes us discomfort or costs us money. How do we respond? Here, Jonah responded wrong. And he says, you know, it's right. It's right for me to, I want to die. I want to get out of here. This is terrible. I'm in a, a terrible situation. And what a, what a downward spiral he's taken once again. From, from chapter 3, just spiritual high, we see the change when he's in the belly of the whale. We see him lifting up the name of the Lord. We see him 
In, in chapter 3, we have the God of the second chance that says, and, and God spoke to Jonah a second time. So he gives him a second chance. He goes and preaches the message. Great things happen. The whole city turns. And now we have chapter 4, and Jonah is sitting miserable on a hill, hot, faint, and, 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 and angry with God. And now we see the heart of God. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have had pity on a plant for which you did not labor nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. This temporal thing, you didn't even do anything. I did it. I gave that to you. I planted it there. I made it grow. I gave it life. I gave you shade. You didn't do anything. And he's saying, because you took this away from me, it's, it's right for me to be, to be angry even to death. But God was teaching him a lesson. This is, this is what God was showing him in this, in this trial that he was in. Verse 11, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? We see God using this term a lot. In chapter 1, he uses it. Um, in chapter 3, we use it. That great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left. Now, some would suggest that this is referring to children um, because um, we think of children, and I think of like Sadie. Um, she, she couldn't tell you what's her right hand or her left. Um, it could be. It could be that. It could be that there were 120,000 children that were beyond or below the age of discernment. They didn't do anything wrong. And you want me to destroy them? That, it could be what God is saying. Um, archaeology suggests that that city was about, that would fit, the, the city of Nineveh would fit around 120 people, 120,000 people. So it could be that these were children, which would bump up the estimate of the city upwards of 600,000 people, or it could be that there were 120,000 people in there that were just lost sheep. Um, we see that they didn't even know how to repent. Um, they, they repented themselves by putting on sackcloth and ashes, and then they went to their animals and put on sackcloth and ashes, just to save the animals too. Um, so they, they, they weren't really quite sure. Um, it, it, Either way, either way, we see the heart of God, a heart, the heart of, of God for this lost city full of people that he created, that he, that he would one day send his son to die for. And he said, 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. Um, it's kind of a, a weird way to end a book, much livestock. Well, God cares for the animals too. He does. Um, God created us. He created man to tend the garden, to take care of animals. He gave Adam the job to, um, to take care of these animals, to name the animals. Um, so the same God that attends the funeral of every sparrow cares for those animals. But God didn't die. He didn't send his son to die for animals. He didn't send his son to die for livestock. He sent his son to die for you. So what's the gospel message? What is this message that, that God is trying to teach us here? God loves the lost. Who are the lost? Who are the lost people? Um, the Bible says, for all have sinned. Um, it would not take us long to determine if we are sinners. If you've ever done anything that has offended God, um, lied, stolen, um, cheated, um, anything, even... Uh, the Lord Jesus, when he comes, he turns up the, the um, 
he makes it even harder, and he says, if you've even thought of a woman and lusted after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. So all have sinned, the Bible says, and it's very clear to see. Um, the Bible also says the soul that sins dies. That's every single person. One out of every one person dies. The soul that sins dies. The Bible also says Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Um, that was his mission. That was his goal. That was his plan. He came to save sinners. He came to die. The Bible also says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You put your faith and trust in that finished work of God, that finished work of Christ on that cross. You believe that he, when he was dying, paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future, and that he died and that he rose again three days later, according to the scriptures. Um, this is the heart of God, a heart for the lost, but he also has a heart for the wayward prophet, the prophet with an attitude, that person who is wandering outside the fold of God, that, that one that is angry with God, that is shaking its fi his fist or her fist at God, um, that one who's, who's stuck and lost in sin and is asleep in the bottom of a boat. Um, he uses circumstances in life to get our attention, to bring us back to him, and he will go to any expense to get you back, to bring you back into fellowship with him. So in the book of Jonah, it's, it's, it's not about Jonah. It's not about a whale. It's about God and how much he loves you, how much he cares for you. And uh, let's just uh, close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you once again for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, it's because of him that we are here this morning. The ability to come into your presence, um, as we've done this morning, to sing praises to his name. Father, even right now, to open your word and to meditate upon that one who went all the way, who died on the cross, a king, a servant, a man, God, dying in our stead. Father, I just pray for each and every person in this room. I pray that no one would leave this building without knowing for sure where they're going to go when they die. Father, we have read in your word how much you love us, how much you care for the lost. Father, I pray that you would give us a heart for the lost. Burden our hearts with these lost souls that pass us by each and every day. Father, help us to proclaim this gospel that you've given to us so freely. And Father, I also pray for those in this room that are perhaps wandering away from you, who are stuck in sin, who are plagued with doubts, who are just going through trials, and Father, they don't know why. Father, I just pray that this morning, today, they would turn back to you, a loving, heavenly Father, who does everything to bring us back to you. So Father, we just pray that you'd uh, bless us with these thoughts, part us with your blessing, and um, just keep us safe and bring us back safely tonight. We pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.